Chapter Six of *The Knight of the Long Knives* by Fritz Leiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. Many a man has dated his ruin from some murder or other that perhaps he thought little of at the time. Thomas De Quincey. And a long merry siege to you, sir, and roast rat for Christmas, I responded, very out loud and rather to my surprise. War! How I hate war! That was what Pop exploded with. He didn't exactly dance in senile rage. He was still keeping too sharp a watch on Alice, but his voice sounded that way. Damn you, Pop! Alice contributed. And you too, Ray. We might have pulled something, but you had to go obedience-happy." Then her anger got the better of her grammar, or maybe Pop and me was corrupting it. "'Damn the both of you!' she finished. It didn't make much sense, any of it. We were just cutting loose, I guess, after being scared to say anything for the last half-hour. I said to Alice, "'I don't know what you could have pulled except the chain on us.' To Pop I remarked, you may hate war, but you sure helped that one along. Those grenades you dropped will probably take care of a few hundred Savannans. That's what you always say about me, isn't it? he snapped back. But I don't suppose I should expect any kinder interpretation of my motives. To Alice he said, I'm sorry I had to slap your burnt fingers, sister, but you can't say I didn't warn you about my low-down tactics. Then to me again, I do hate war, Ray. It's just murder on a bigger scale, though some of the boys give me an argument there. Then why don't you go preach against war in Alta High in Savannah? Alice demanded, still very hot, but not quite so bitter. Yeah, Pop, how about it? I seconded. Maybe I should, he said, thoughtful all at once. They sure need it. Then he grinned. Hey, how'd this sound? Hear the world-famous murderer, Pop? Trumbull, talk against war, wear your steel throat protectors. Pretty good, hey? We all laughed at that, grudgingly at first, then with a touch of wholeheartedness. I think we all recognized that things weren't going to be very cheerful from here on in, and we'd better not turn up our noses at the feeblest fun. I guess I didn't have anything very bright in mind, Alice admitted to me, while to Pop she said, all right, I forgive you for the present. Don't, Pop said with a shudder. I hate to think of what happened to the last bugger made the mistake of forgiving me. We looked around and took stock of our resources. It was time we did. It was getting dark fast, although we were chasing the sun and there wasn't any cabin lights coming on, and we sure didn't know of any way of getting any. We wadded a couple of satchels into the hole in the world screen without trying to probe it. After a while it got warmer again in the cabin, and the air was a little less dusty. Presently it started to get too smoky from the cigarettes we were burning, but that came later. We screwed off the walls the few storage bags we hadn't inspected. They didn't contain nothing of consequence, not even a flashlight. I had one last go at the buttons, though there weren't any left with nimbuses on them. The darker it got, the clearer that was. Even the Alta High button wouldn't push, now that it had lost its violet halo. I tried the gunnery patterns, figuring to put in a little time taking pot shots at any mountains that turned up, 
But the buttons that had been responding so well a few minutes ago refused to budge. Alice suggested different patterns, but none of them worked. The console was really locked. Maybe the shot from Savannah was partly responsible, although Altahai remote locking things was explanation enough. The buggers, I said. They didn't have to tie us up this tight. Going east, we at least had a choice, forward or back. Now we got none. Maybe we're just as well off, Pop said. If Altahai had been able to do anything more to us, that is, if they hadn't been sieged in, I mean, they'd sure as anything have pulled us in. Pulled the plane in, I mean, and picked us out of it, with a big pair of tweezers, likely as not. And contrary to your flattering opinion of my preaching, which, by the way, none of the religious boys in my outfit share, they call me that misguided old atheist, I don't think none of us would go over big at Altahai. We had to agree with him there. I couldn't imagine Pop, or Alice, or even me, cutting much of a figure, even if we weren't murder pariahs, with the pack of geniuses that seemed to make up the Alta Alamos crowd. The double-A republics, to give them a name, might have their small brain types, but somehow I didn't think so. There must be more than one Edison-Einstein, it seemed to me, back of anti-gravity and all the wonders in this plane and the other things we'd gotten hints of. Also, Grail had seemed bred for brains as well as size, even if us small mammals had cooked his goose. And none of the modern countries had more than a few thousand population yet, I was pretty sure, and that hardly left room for a dumbbell class. Finally, too, I got hold of a memory I'd been reaching for the last hour. How, when I was a kid, I'd read about some scientists who learned to talk Mandarin just for kicks. I told Alice and Pop. And if that's the average Alta Alamoser's idea of mental recreation, I said, well, you can see what I mean. I'll grant you they got a monopoly on brains, Pop agreed. Not sense, though, he added doggedly. Intellectual snobs, was Alice's comment. I know the type, and I detest it. You are some sort of intellectual, aren't you? Pop told her, which fortunately didn't start a riot. Still, I guess all three of us found it fun to chew over a bit the new slant we'd gotten on two, in a way three, of the great countries of the modern world. And as long as we thought of it as fun, we didn't have to admit the envy and wistfulness that was behind our wisecracks. I said, We've always figured in a general way that Alamos was the remains of a community of scientists and technicians. Now we know the same's true of the Alta High group. They're the Brookhaven survivors. Manhattan Project, don't you mean? Alice corrected. Nope, that was in Colorado Springs, Pop said with finality. I also pointed out that a community of scientists would educate for technical intelligence, maybe breed for it, too. And, being a group picked for high IQ to begin with, they might make startlingly fast progress. You could easily imagine such folk, unimpeded by the boobs, creating a wonder world in a couple of generations. They got their troubles, though, Pop reminded me, and that led us to speculating about the war we dipped into. Savannah Fortress, we knew, was supposed to be based on some big atomic plants on the river down that way, 
but its culture seemed to have a fiercer ingredient than Alta Alamos. Before we knew it we were musing almost romantically about the plight of Alta High, besieged by superior and, it was easy to suppose, barbaric forces, and maybe distant Los Alamos in a similar predicament. Alice reminded me how the voice had asked if they were still dying out there. For a moment I found myself fiercely proud that I had been able to strike a blow against the evil aggressors. At once, of course, then the revulsion came. This is a hell of a way, I said, for three so-called realists to be mooning about things. Yes, especially when your heroes kicked us out, Alice agreed. Pop chuckled. <laughs> yep, he said. They even took Ray's artillery away from him. You're wrong there, Pop, I said, sitting up. I still got one of the grenades, the one the pilot had in his fist. To tell the truth, I'd forgotten all about it, and it bothered me a little now to feel it snuggled up in my pocket against my hip bone where the skin is thin. You believe what that old Dutchman said about the steel cubes being atomic grenades? Pop asked me. I don't know, I said. He sure didn't sound enthusiastic about telling us the truth about anything. But for that matter, he sounded mean enough to tell the truth, figuring we'd think it was a lie. Maybe this is some sort of baby A-bomb with a fuse time like a grenade. I got it out and hefted it. How about I press the button and drop it out the door? Then we'll know. I really felt like doing it. Restless, I guess. Don't be a fool, Ray, Alice said. Don't tense up. I won't, I told her. At the same time, I made myself the little promise that if I ever got to feeling restless, that is, restless and bad, I'd just go ahead and punch the button and see what happened. Sort of leave my future up to the gods of the Deathlands, you might say. What makes you so sure it's a weapon? Pop asked. What else could it be? I asked him. That they'd be so hot on getting them in the middle of a war? I don't know for sure, Pop said. I've made a guess, but I don't want to tell it now. What I'm getting at, Ray, is that your first thought about anything you find, in the world outside or in your own mind, is that it's a weapon. Anything worthwhile in your mind is a weapon, Alice interjected with surprising intensity. You see? Pop said. That's what I mean about the both of you. That sort of thinking's been going on a long time. Caveman picks up a rock and right away asks himself, Who can I brain with this? Doesn't occur to him for several hundred thousand years to use it to start building a hospital. You know, Pop, I said, carefully tucking the cube back in my pocket, you are sort of preachy at times. Guess I am, he said. How about some grub? It was a good idea. Another few minutes and we wouldn't have been able to see to eat, though with the cans shaped to tell their contents I guess we'd have managed. It was a funny circumstance that in this wonder plane we didn't even know how to turn on the light, and a good measure of our general helplessness. We had our little feed and lit up again and settled ourselves. I judged it would be an overnight trip, at least to the cracking plant. We weren't making anything like the speed we had been going east. Pop was sitting in back again, and Alice and I lay half-hitched around on the kneeling seats, which allowed us to watch each other. Pretty soon it got so dark we couldn't see anything of each other but the glowing tips of the cigarettes, and a bit of face around the mouth 
when the person took a deep drag. They were a good idea, those cigarettes, kept us from having ideas about the other person starting to creep around with a knife in his hand. The North American screens still glowed dimly, and we could watch our green dot trying to make progress. The viewport was dead black at first, then there came the faintest sort of bronze blotch that very slowly shifted forward and down, the old moon, of course, going west ahead of us. After a while I realized what it was like, an old Pullman car, I'd traveled in one once as a kid, or especially the smoker of an old Pullman very late at night. Our crippled anti-gravity, working on the irregularities of the ground as they came along below, made the ride rhythmically bumpy, you see. I remember how lonely and strange that old sleeping car had seemed to me as a kid. This felt the same. I kept waiting for a hoot or a whistle. It was the sort of loneliness that settles in your bones and keeps working at you. I recall the first man I ever killed. Pop started to reminisce softly. Shut up, Alice told him. Don't you ever talk about anything but murder, Pop? Guess not, he said. After all, it's the only really interesting topic there is. Do you know of another? It was silent in the cabin for a long time after that. Then Alice said, It was the afternoon before my twelfth birthday when they came into the kitchen and killed my father. He'd been wise in a way and had us living at a spot where the bombs didn't touch us or the worst fallout. But he hadn't counted on the local werewolf gang. He'd just been slicing some bread, homemade from our own wheat. Dad was great on back to nature and all, but he laid down the knife. Dad couldn't see any object or idea as a weapon, you see. That was his great weakness. Dad couldn't even see weapons as weapons. Dad had a philosophy of cooperation, that was his name for it, that he was going to explain to people. Sometimes I think he was glad of the last war, because he believed it would give him his chance. But the werewolves weren't interested in philosophy, and although their knives weren't as sharp as Dad's, they didn't lay them down. Afterwards they had themselves a meal with me for dessert. I remember one of them used a slice of bread to sop up blood like gravy, and another washed his hands and face in the cold coffee. She didn't say anything else for a bit. Pop said softly, That was the afternoon, wasn't it, that the fallen angels— And then just said, My big mouth. You were going to say, The afternoon they killed God? Alice asked him. You're right, it was. They killed God in the kitchen that afternoon. That's how I know he's dead. Afterwards they would have killed me, too, eventually, except— Again she broke off, this time to say, Pop, do you suppose I can have been thinking about myself as the daughter of God all these years, that that's why everything seems so intense? I don't know, Pop said. The religious boys say we're all children of God, but I don't put much stock in it, or else God sure has some lousy children. Go on with your story. Well, they would have killed me, too, except the leader took a fancy to me, and got the idea of training me up for a were-girl, or she-wolf-deb, or whatever they called it. That was my first experience of ideas as weapons. He got an idea about me, and I used it to kill him. I had to wait three months for my opportunity. 
I got him so lazy he let me shave him. He bled to death the same way as Dad. Hm, Pop commented after a bit. That was a chiller, all right. I got to remember to tell it to Bill. It was somebody killing his mother that got him started. Alice, you had just as good a justification for your first murder as any I remember hearing. Yes, Alice said after another pause, with just a trace of the old sarcasm creeping back into her voice. I don't suppose you think I was right to do it? Right? Wrong? Who knows? Pop said almost blusteringly. Sure, you were justified in a whole pack of ways. Anybody would sympathize with you. A man often has fine justification for the first murder he commits. But as you must know, it's not that first murder's always so bad in itself as that it's apt to start you on a killing spree. Your sense of values gets shifted a tiny bit and never shifts back. But you know all that, and who am I to tell you anything anyway? I've killed men because I didn't like the way they spit and may very well do it again if I don't keep watching myself and keep my mind ventilated." "'Well, Pop,' Alice said, "'I didn't always have such dandy justification for my killings. Last one was a moony old physicist. He fixed me the Geiger counter I carry. A silly old geek. I don't know how he survived so long. Maybe an exile or a runaway. You know, I often attach myself to the elderly do-gooder type, like my father was, or like you, Pop." Pop nodded. It's good to know yourself, he said. There was a third pause, and then, although I hadn't exactly been intending to, I said, Alice had justification for her first murder, personal justification that an ape would understand. I had no personal justification at all for mine. Yet I killed about a million people, at a modest estimate. You see, I was the boss of a crew that took care of the hydrogen missile ticketed for Moscow. And when the ticket was finally taken up, I was the one to punch it. My finger on the firing button, I mean. I went on, yeah, Pop, I was one of the button pushers. There were really quite a few of us, of course. That's why I get such a laugh out of stories about being or rubbing out the one guy who pushed all the buttons. That's so. Pop said, with only mild-sounding interest. In that case, you ought to know. We didn't get to hear right then who I ought to know, because I had a fit of coughing, and we realized the cigarette smoke was getting just too thick. Pop fixed the door, so it was open a crack, and after a while the atmosphere got reasonably okay, though we had to put up with a low, lonely whistling sound. Yeah, I continued. I was the boss of the missile crew, and I wore a very handsome uniform with impressive insignia, not the bully old stripes I got on my chest now, and I was very young and handsome myself. We were all very young in that line of service, although a few of the men under me were a little older, young and dedicated. I remember feeling a very deep and grim and clean responsibility, but I wonder sometimes just how deep it went or how clean it really was. I had an uncle flew in the war they fought to lick fascism, bombardier on a flying fortress or something, and once, when he got drunk, he told me how some days it didn't bother him at all to drop the eggs on Germany. The buildings and people down there seemed just like toys that a kid set up to kick over. 
and the whole business about as naive fun as poking an anthill. I didn't even have to fly over at seven miles what I was going to be aiming at. Only I remember sometimes getting out a map and looking at a certain large dot on it, and smiling a little and softly saying, POW, and then giving a little conventional shudder and folding up the map quick. Naturally, we told ourselves we'd never have to do it, fire the thing, I mean. We joked about how, after twenty years or so, we'd all be given jobs as museum attendants of this same bomb, deactivated at last. But naturally it didn't work out that way. There came the day when our side of the world got hit, and the orders started cascading down from Defense Coordinator Bigelow. Bigelow? Pop interrupted. Not Joe Bigelow. Joseph A., I believe, I told him a little annoyed. Why, he's my boy, then, the one I was telling you about. The skinny runt had this horn handle. Can you beat that? Pop sounded startlingly happy. Him and you'll have a lot to talk about when you get together. I wasn't so sure of that myself. In fact, my first reaction was that the opposite would be true. To be honest, I was for the first moment more than a little annoyed at Pop interrupting my story of my big grief. For it was that to me, make no mistake. Here my story had finally been teased out of me, against all expectation, after decades of repression, and in spite of dozens of assorted psychological blocks, and here was Pop interrupting it for the sake of a lot of trivial organizational gossip about Joes and Bills and Georges we never heard of, and what they'd say or think. But then, all of a sudden, I realized that I didn't really care, that it didn't feel like a big grief any more, that just starting to tell about it after hearing Pop and Alice tell their stories had purged me of that unnecessary weight of feeling that had made it a millstone around my neck. It seemed to me now that I could look down at Ray Baker from a considerable height, but not an angelic or contemptuously superior height, and ask myself not why he had grieved so much, that was understandable and even desirable, but why he had grieved so uselessly in such a stuffy little private hell. And it would be interesting to find out how Joseph A. Bigelow had felt. How does it feel, Ray, to kill a million people?" I realized that Alice had asked me the question several seconds back, and it was hanging in the air. That's just what I've been trying to tell you, I told her, and started to explain it all over again. The words poured out of me now. I won't put them down here, it would take too long, but they were honest words as far as I knew, and they eased me. I couldn't get over it. Here were us three murderers, feeling a trust and understanding and sharing a communion that I wouldn't have believed possible between any two or three people in the age of the debtors, or in any age, to tell the truth. It was against everything I knew of Deathland psychology, but it was happening just the same. Oh, our strange isolation had something to do with it, I knew, and that Pullman car memory hypnotizing my mind and our reactions to the voices and violences of Alta Alamos, but in spite of all that I ranked it as a wonder. I felt an inward freedom and easiness that I never would have believed possible. Pop's little disorganized organization had really got hold of something. I couldn't deny it. 
Three treacherous killers talking from the bottoms of their hearts and believing each other, for it never occurred to me to doubt that Pop and Alice were feeling exactly like I was. In fact, we were all so sure of it that we didn't even mention our communion to each other. Perhaps we were a little afraid we would rub off the bloom. We just enjoyed it. We must have talked about a thousand things that night and smoked a couple of hundred cigarettes. After a while we started taking little catnaps. We'd gotten too much off our chests and come to feel too tranquil for even our excitement to keep us awake. I remember the first time I dozed, waking up with a cold start and grabbing for Mother, and then hearing Pop and Alice gabbing in the dark and remembering what had happened and relaxing again with a smile. Of all things, Pop was saying, Yep, I imagine Ray must be good to make love to. Murderers almost always are. They got the fire. It reminds me of what a guy named Fred told me, one of our boys. Mostly we took turns going to sleep, though I think there were times when all three of us were snoozing. About the fifth time I woke, after some tighter shut-eye, the orange soup was back again outside and Alice was snoring gently in the next seat, and Pop was up and had one of his knives out. He was looking at his reflection in the viewport. His face gleamed. He was rubbing butter into it. "'Another day, another pack of troubles,' he said cheerfully. The tone of his remark jangled my nerves, as that tone generally does early in the morning. I squeezed my eyes. "'Where are we?' I asked. He poked his elbow toward the North American screen. The two green dots were almost one. "'My God, we're practically there,' Alice said to me. She'd waked fast, Deathland style. "'I know,' Pop said, concentrating on what he was doing. "'But I aim to be shaved before they commence landing maneuvers.' "'You think automatic will land us?' Alice asked. "'What if we just start circling around?' We can figure out what to do when it happens, Pop said, whittling away at his chin. Till then, I'm not interested. There's still a couple of bottles of coffee in the sack. I've had mine. I didn't join in this chit-chat because the green dots and Alice's first remark had reminded me of a lot deeper reason for my jangled nerves than Pop's cheerfulness. Night was gone, with its shielding cloak and its feeling of being able to talk forever and the naked day was here, with its demands for action. It is not so difficult to change your whole view of life when you are flying, or even bumping along above the ground with friends who understand, but soon I knew I'd be down in the dust with something I never wanted to see again. Coffee, Ray? Yeah, I guess so. I took the bottle from Alice and wondered whether my face looked as glum as hers. They shouldn't salt butter. Pop asserted. It makes it lousy for shaving. It was the best butter, Alice said. Yeah, I said, the Dormouse, when they buttered the watch. It may be true that feeble humor is better than none. I don't know. What are you two yakking about? Pop demanded. A book we both read, I told him. Either of you writers? Pop asked with sudden interest. Some of the boys think we should have a book about us. I say it's too soon. But they say we might all die off or something. Whoa, Jenny, easy, does it, gently, please. That last remark was by way of recognizing that the plane had started an authoritative turn to the left. I got a sick and cold feeling. This was it. 
Pop sheathed his knife and gave his face a final rub. Alice belted on her satchel. I reached for my knapsack, but I was staring through the viewport, dead ahead. The haze lightened faintly, three times. I remembered the St. Elmo's fire that had flamed from the cracking plant. Pop, I said, almost whined, to be truthful. Why'd the bugger ever have to land here in the first place? He was rushing stuff they needed bad at Alta High. Why'd he have to break his trip? That's easy, said Pop. He was being a bad boy. At least that's my theory. He was supposed to go straight to Alta High, but there was somebody he wanted to check up on first. He stopped here to see his girlfriend. Yep, his girlfriend. She tried to warn him off. That's my explanation of the juice that flared out of the Kraken plant and interfered with his landing, though I'm sure she didn't intend the last. By the way, whatever she turned on to give him the warning must still be turned on. But Grail came down in spite of it. Before I could assimilate that, the seven deformed gas tanks materialized in the haze. We got the freeway in our sights and steadied and slowed and kept slowing. The plane didn't graze the cracking plant this time, though I'd have sworn it was going to hit it head-on. When I saw we weren't going to hit it, I wanted to shut my eyes, but I couldn't. The stain was black now, and the pilot's body was thicker than I remembered, bloated. But that wouldn't last long. Three or four vultures were working on it. End of chapter 6